I mentioned this morning that one of the questions that um, I often get as a pastor is about church membership. Another one I get, and this has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about tonight. I just want to share this with you. Another one I get is, what does it mean to live the Christian life? That's a complicated topic. Well, we can boil that down to a few sentences. A Christian meets with the church on the Lord's Day to hear about Christ and how to live more like Christ. And then we go out into the world and we proclaim Christ and live like Christ. And then we come back and do it again. And you keep doing that and you bring friends with you and you bring people to the cross and we have people come in the back door in salvation and go out the front door in death. That's it. That's the Christian life. We meet together every week and every once in a while, one of us gets to go home and we celebrate that and we celebrate when we have new life in the midst of the church and we proclaim Christ and how to live like him. There's the Christian life. Question answered. Speaking of living the Christian life, turn with me to Proverbs 3. And tonight we're going to peruse some familiar scriptures, but we'll, we'll begin in Proverbs 3 and eventually make our way to the New Testament epistles. At this time of the year, I generally take some things that have been growing in my own heart. I keep a little list throughout the year of, of the things that the Lord has impressed on me and what I believe the Lord would give me to give to you. Uh, by way of reminder, and so usually this time of the year we talk about some reminders, that just, just the basics of our faith. And in mid-December, I began a short series I'd like to conclude this evening. We started talking about this, what I called the greatest Christian virtue, and I identified this as unconditional love. And it is the greatest Christian virtue because in the act of unconditional love, we're emulating our God to the utmost. We are being the most like Him. We're acting toward others as He has treated us with grace and kindness beyond measure. This is something that you need to be reminded of, certainly something I need to be reminded of, and that is the idea of living out the love that Christ has already demonstrated to us because we're not naturally very good at it. And so we need reminders. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is really just one long message. I took the first evening to introduce the idea. We looked at Psalm 41 in which King David had been betrayed by those closest to him. We saw the hurt and the anguish that it caused his heart when those that he most trusted turned on him. Psalm 41 is very much a complaint to God about how David's friends betrayed him when he was in a time of weakness, a time of being down. And we saw that David was the victim of the wicked thoughts of others, that his friends cultivated opinions of David in which they literally wished that he was dead. He was the victim of growing hypocrisy. His friends said words to his face that David said were empty words. They, they were meaningless. He was the victim of group gossip. His friends were gathering together for support to betray him. And in this case, it was an attempted coup on the government. He was a victim of what we called false omniscience, that these friends judged that David, because he was sick, was under God's judgment and literally deemed that he was unfit to stay alive. And finally, we saw that he was the victim of heartbreaking betrayal, that one particular friend, one of David's closest confidants and allies, deceived David and betrayed him. And then from Proverbs, we began building some, some principal foundations of unconditional love, that the rocks, the pillars that unconditional love are built upon. 
And we said that unconditional love is internal. It has to be real. We said that unconditional love is consistent, that, that there's a, a predictability to it. We said that unconditional love is, is genuine. You really mean it. We said that unconditional love is, is dependable in the sense that it's part of a covenant that you've made between you and another person, that you are going to love that person no matter what. And we said that unconditional love is gracious, there's a kindness to it. So those are foundational pillars. And then what we started doing was just to kind of deconstruct this idea. We, we wanted to take apart the component parts and see what is unconditional love made of and sort of dissect it, so to speak. And so doing this deconstruction and how it plays out in real life, I suggested five of these components to begin with from Scripture. We said, first of all, having an image of God perspective that is being reminded that every human being is made in the image of God, made in God's likeness. And James chapter 3 tells us that that's to motivate us in how we love others. We said another component part was empathy. And that is to attempt to truly put yourself in someone else's place before jumping to hasty actions which damage relationships. We suggested purity of heart. And that is to have the purest of motives and a deep desire to genuinely love another person in your interactions with them and to care enough to, to tailor your interactions in a way that's loving. We talked about the component of bridge building, to be those who, who build bridges over the relational walls, not adding bricks to the wall to make it higher and thicker and deeper. And then we talked about humility, to remember Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So this evening, I'd like to essentially conclude what is one really long message by giving more component parts to unconditional love. And, and I think it's important that this is our first Sunday evening in 2019. And I, I hope that this helps you set a direction in being more like Christ in this area, something that I'll look at in a few moments but we want to demonstrate the fruit of righteousness. We want to demonstrate the result of salvation to others. We, we don't want to appear as the world. We want to be completely different from the world. So we looked at those five component parts last time, the image of God perspective, empathy, purity of heart, bridge building, humility. We'll do the final five this evening. Now, I'm going to tell you this. None of these are going to surprise you. I have no shortcuts and I have no new amazing revelations that will just make relationships easy for you. I don't have any of that. Unconditional love requires hard work. It requires dedication. It requires looking yourself in the mirror and saying, really, I did that again and again and again. It requires examining yourself. It requires knowing your weaknesses and, and the greatest difficulties. So needless to say, this is not a comfortable message for me to preach because it requires that of me as well. But let's begin looking at these components. We'll just start with number six. The sixth component we'll just call trust. Trust. Now, I just said that I have no amazing new revelation, but I do confess that trust is a bit of a twist and somewhat of a surprise because when I said the word trust, in all likelihood, your mind's engaged by going to the compartment in your brain labeled why I should trust someone else. Wrong compartment. The compartment I'm talking about is the one labeled, why should someone else trust me? Why should they trust me? Unconditional love includes the component of being trustworthy, reliable, constant, faithful. Not you trusting them, but, you, but them trusting you. 
Look with me at Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to bounce around to a number of scriptures here. Almost to the end of the chapter, verse 29. Such wisdom for us here. Proverbs three twenty-nine. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Now, you know from the Lord Jesus Christ that when the Bible talks about your neighbor, it's not literally the person on either side of you of your house. Your neighbor is anyone that you interact with. It is your sphere of influence, your relationships. But generally speaking, a human being, saved or not, isn't going to plan evil against his neighbor. I mean, life is too complicated to sit around plotting all the time just to make somebody else's life miserable. I mean, we, we have too many other things to do. Generally speaking, without any sort of reason, we're not going to plan evil. However, well, you've been wronged. You've been slighted. You've been offended. And at that point, then, our natural bent is to hear the phrases we use, give them what's coming to them, see how they feel when XYZ happens to them, or give them a taste of their own medicine. See how it makes them feel. And that is our, that's our natural bent. And you might say, oh, that's ridiculous. That would never happen among Christians. Well, the Apostle Paul thought it did. He thought the Thessalonians were capable of vengeful behavior. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. He thought the Romans were capable of vengeful behavior. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The Apostle Peter thought vengeful behavior was possible among Christians. He said in 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter commanded against reviling one another, using abusive or mocking or, or belittling language to make them less than you. And of course, reviling begins in the heart. And the writer of Proverbs warns against this as well. Turn with me to Proverbs 11. In Proverbs 11, we see this same topic expounded upon. Proverbs 11, verse 12. Proverbs 11, verse 12 says, Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. The Hebrew word for belittle here, it means to use speech which shows that you have contempt for someone, that you despise someone. It has to do with what you say and it has to do with how you say it. And here we have, in the second half of verse 12, the original mother's warning that if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. It says here, a man of understanding remains silent. Now, don't misunderstand. The idea here is not that just shutting your mouth is the solution. The idea is that shutting your mouth until you get your heart right is the solution. This isn't suddenly going off the radar and silencing your communication with someone. This isn't being curt and rude and not speaking to them or not answering texts or emails and and having a little fit of some sort and then claiming, hey, I'm just trying to be a man of understanding. That's not that at all. It is 
keeping silent until your heart is correct. It's taking time to readjust your heart. And I tell this to married couples all the time. If your husband or wife says, I need to walk away and go get my heart right before I say things that are sinful and wrong, don't follow him. Don't follow her. Don't keep berating and keep belittling. Don't say, we're going to deal with this now. No, that, that person is, is exhibiting a godly response. When somebody says to you, if I don't walk away now, I'm going to say something that we'll both regret, let them. That's easy. But there's another even more destructive way we can violate trust, and, and that's to take these offensive words not to the person, but to someone else. To someone else. Look with me at Proverbs 17. It just gets worse. Proverbs 17, verse 9. And this will sound familiar to you because we have an echo of it in the New Testament. Proverbs 17, verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And you can hear this echoed by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now listen, it's not so much that love ignores sin, although sometimes that's part of being patient and having the Lord be in charge of somebody's sanctification instead of you trying to take that on. But it's that I won't repeat to others sins that you've committed against me. I won't repeat that. There, there are some things that in my marriage, some things that we have not done as well as we would like, but one of the things that we have stuck to, Sylvia and I, we have stuck to our guns on this, that we will never besmirch the other's reputation to anybody else because we need to be able to trust one another in that. She knows all the most horrible things about me. If my wife got up here and told you everything about me, you would leave. But if I knew everything about you, I would leave. So it's, we're, we're even on that. But it is possible. It's possible, according to Proverbs 17, 9, to, to be in disagreement with someone and yet still be close friends. But what is it that separated them? What separated them is when the disagreement goes outside that friendship, goes outside that relationship. This is incredibly destructive because now it influences the opinion that others have of someone who's not there to give the other side of the story. Look at Proverbs 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That first half of that verse is the essence of the destructive nature of gossip. The first one to talk about it seems right. But it takes two perspectives to get the whole picture. You ever try to drive with one eye closed? You, you lose your depth perception and it's difficult. It takes two perspectives to give the whole picture. But if you're going down the road of involving a third party, and that is an absolute last-ditch effort, it's not something you run to quickly. If you have to go down that road, Scripture tells us exactly how and when to do that. Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But there's nothing in there that says you need to jump right to that. Sometimes that first step, it might involve years. It might involve saying, you know, I'm gonna work on this and pray through it for a decade before I involve anybody else. That kind of patience. 
How you use your tongue, though, will determine whether or not someone can trust you or not. And they may offend you, and they, they may ask for your forgiveness a thousand times, and you may rightly extend forgiveness a thousand times. But in the midst of all that, the question they might have is, is when, when are you going to control your tongue? When are you going to speak to me in a way that's respectful? When are you going to speak to others about me in a way that's respectful? And this is a, this is a hard distinction, but the Bible does command that we forgive pretty much unconditionally. The Bible never commands that we trust another person unconditionally forever. There can come a point where you violate trust such that it can never be regained. And so trust is precious. It is a, it's an important component that you are unconditionally loving others by being trustworthy. Let's do a, a seventh component we'll call sanctification. And just to define this term, I, I don't want to assume we all understand this. Sanctification is the setting apart of the Christian to holiness, to growing in Christ-likeness. It's the, it's the idea that we're different. We're set apart. We're, we're unique. We're not to be like the world. We're not to be like other people. And again, like trust, I'm talking about your sanctification, not the other person's. Ultimately, you don't have any, any control over someone else's sanctification in their growth in Christ-likeness. This morning, you were here when I begged and pleaded anyone who is in this category to go to the membership class. But at that point, I can't control who does that. I can plead and I can tell you what the Bible says, but ultimately, sanctification becomes your decision between you and the Lord. And if you choose not to be sanctified, the Lord will deal with that. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 15. And let's talk about this idea of sanctifying yourself. There are a number of verses that people wish they could rip out of the Bible. And I think Proverbs 15 verse 1 is one of them because it convicts every one of us. Proverbs 15 verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Wrath here, this is a word translated a number of ways in the Old Testament. It's translated as fury, as hot displeasure, as venom, as poison, as rage, as furious, even the phrase the heat of his anger. The the basic core meaning of this Hebrew word has to do with heat. It has to do with what we would say being hot under the collar. Very often the same word is used of God himself in his righteous fury against sin, his righteous heatedness against sin. Very rarely, though, is the heated fury of a human being righteous in nature. That's not very common. And so this verse is helping us understand how to respond to the sinful speech of someone else. And it's not easy because it flies in the face of those times when we feel slighted and even abused when someone is, is furious for, for whatever reason. And so in pursuit of our own sanctification, in pursuit of our own desire to be pleasing before God, we receive this admonition as to how to, to act in love, and that is give a soft answer. And this is contrary to our, our, our will. I mean, I think the first words that every baby says is, oh yeah? That, that's what we learn. The, the idea of a soft answer is, is tender, it's mild, it's gentle, and And this is not easy for us. Why a soft answer? Well, because a harsh word just stirs up anger. Some people call that escalation. 
if you've ever been in a conversation that in about 30 seconds feels like somebody's going to hit somebody, you understand what escalation is. Now, maybe this means that you need to apologize for something. Maybe it just refers to the manner in which you stand your ground when it would be sinful not to. A soft answer doesn't mean not answering. It just means a soft answer. But it isn't primarily referring to the content of what's being said. It refers to the manner in which it's said. It refers to the manner. And the consequences for a habitually berating tongue can be disastrous. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 4. A habitual berating tongue... We see a contrast here, 15 verse 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle tongue builds and nourishes a relationship, but a perverse tongue, it literally is a word that means to distort, to exaggerate. A perverse tongue breaks the spirit, meaning that a person may ultimately feel so broken down by your words that they begin to feel dehumanized and less than human, less than in the image of God. Now, in marriages, I've seen this go both ways, rather. Scripture admonishes both husbands and wives to not break the other's spirit. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Proverbs 21.19, on the other hand, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. And so both husbands and wives, every relationship, we're, we're called to not break the other spirit. And really what this is, a reviling, abusive language, what this is, is an attempt to break apart the other person's status as being made in the image of God. You are less than image of God. You are less than me. Carol Mack, the wife of author Wayne Mack, and you should read anything you can get your hands on that Wayne Mack writes, but... His wife wrote of a time that she was reminded of Proverbs 15.1. I want to read this story to you. It's, it's worth considering. She writes, Many years ago, our daughter Beth was living with us while attending graduate school. I remember driving my youngest son, Josh, to school one day when he turned to me and said, I just don't think it's fair. What's not fair, I asked. He continued, In the morning when Beth is still asleep and I'm getting ready for school, you're always saying, Be quiet, Beth is sleeping. But at night, I go to bed a long time before she does, and I don't hear you saying, be quiet, Josh is already in bed. You're right, Josh, I said, and I never realized that. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. I need to change that because that isn't fair and it's not right. And when I finished, I noticed that he still had a grouchy looking face. So I said, what's the matter? He answered, it's really hard to be mad at you when you ask for forgiveness. She goes on, I thought about that moment in relation to Proverbs 15.1. There are so many times when a gentle answer can put out a fire and a harsh one can stir it up. Pursue your own sanctification. There's an eighth component, patience. Patience. And while you're inwardly groaning at this topic, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, the, the classic, if not misnamed, love chapter. It isn't so much the love chapter as it is the proper view of spiritual gifts in the church chapter. But we'll let that slide for the moment and just call it the love chapter. Verses 4 through 7 are famous for its 15-item list of what love is and what it isn't. And it's significant 
that the first item on this list really sets the tone for all the rest. It, it, it really is the, the direction setter. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. Now, patient is a word in Greek which has at its core idea, the idea of waiting. It's the idea of delaying. You would never say, hurry up and be patient. It's, it's the idea of waiting on something. It's used a number of ways in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 18 to speak of asking someone to wait patiently for payment of a debt. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to speak of the attitude that we're to have with the most difficult brothers and sisters in the faith, that we're with the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. We're to be patient with them all. It's used in James 5.7 to speak of waiting patiently for the Lord's coming while we suffer in this life. And in 2 Peter 3.9, it's used of the Lord's patience as he waits for all the elect to repent and to come to faith in Christ, that he is patient, not willing that one should not repent. All should come to him. And in all of these contexts, the idea of waiting, of delaying, is either explicit or implicit in its use. And that's the opposite of our tendency. We want things to be fixed now because we have emotional angst and anxiety and we want to get something resolved now at this moment when there's something between you and another person and for whatever reason you are not able to go to that person or it's not going to be a good idea because you're going to get punched in the nose if you go to that person right now. It's hard for us to wait and to say this is going to take time. It doesn't mean that we don't take appropriate relationship helping actions at time at times, but not in the spirit of I have to do this now so I can feel better. I have been guilty of this. You have been guilty of this, of not being patient. This has the idea of trusting the Lord more and trusting yourself less to do the work of sanctification and change. You know what's really, really freeing? That sometimes just to make the decision, you know what, in this person's life, in this area of sin that just so irritates and bothers me, I think I'm just going to let the Lord deal with it and I'm not going to try to fix it. That's freedom. That's freedom. And then you sit back and you pray in precatory prayers. I mean, that's how we are. But if you fall into the trap of believing that you can't be satisfied in a relationship until that person has completely conformed to your wishes, now that's the sin of perfectionism, which is the opposite of patience. Perfectionism is putting a completely unrealistic expectation on someone else. And it totally violates the spirit of Philippians 4.8. Remember what Paul tells us to do is so instructive. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what's the next word? Think on these things. How instructive for us. You're never going to have a perfected spouse, parents, children, co-workers, pastors, elders, fellow church members. You're never going to have that. The spirit of patience says the Lord is working in this person's heart and life in ways I can't see and that I'm not responsible for. That's freedom. Ultimately, to continue in impatience with someone, to look so carefully at every petty annoyance you can find, to constantly see only the negative in someone, really, if you take that to the logical extreme, and I know this because I've heard this in my office, if you take it to the logical extreme and let that continue to fester, you know where you end up? The end point of that line of thinking is, man, when that person is dead, I sure will be relieved. 
And now you've crossed over into murderous thoughts. That is not theoretical. That happens. I read the story of one woman who was constantly irritated by the ugly ties her husband would wear to church. Every Sunday was a trial for her. She fumed inwardly at his lack of clothing sense and how it embarrassed her. But when her husband passed away suddenly, she ultimately found herself thinking she would give anything to see him in those ugly ties again. To have his companionship, his provision, his protection back. She squandered her marriage. She squandered it. And it's possible to do by having those continual negative thoughts. Listen, this patience doesn't just happen. It's not just a new state of mind. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, look at the first two words. Pursue love. This is not passive. This is an active verb. It means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective, that you're going to work at it. You're going to get better at it and get better at it and get better at it. But the writer of Proverbs gives a very practical admonition in Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It brings the believer in Christ glory to be patient, to, to let yourself, and this is not easy for me, it's not easy for you, but to let yourself get run over, to, to let yourself get hammered. I have a friend in the pastorate who went to a church plant a number of years ago and the, the, the core group in this church plant had so many issues. I mean, it was like being dropped into the worst dysfunctional family on the planet. And he just got dropped into this time bomb and, and fights started and everything. And the only way he could get through it was he finally decided, and this was his quote, he said, I'm gonna be a soccer ball for Jesus and they can kick me wherever they want. And that's how he got through it and ultimately resolved many of those issues. Listen, you know who you are. If you have a, to- uh, if you have a hot temper, Stop calling it righteous indignation because it's not. It's simply that you are choosing to let your emotion rule your heart. It's that simple. And to one degree or another, every one of us have a hot temper. It's just that we express it in different ways. Some of you express it outwardly and others express it inwardly by doing a slow boil. But the heart condition is still the same. So beware of our own wicked hearts and instead pursue love, impatience, work, work at it. Here's a ninth component, a little bit more complicated. Believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. Still here in 1 Corinthians 13, look with me at verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The Apostle Paul here says that love believes all things. And I want to focus on that. A very valid, a very useful, and the traditional understanding of this is that love believes the best about another person. And this is certainly the case in, for example, Philippians 4, 8, in which I just, I, I just read that we, we think on the good things. It has the idea of choosing how you even think about another person. The Apostle Paul told the Philippian church, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you that he has chosen to focus only on the good memories by the grace and spirit of God, Paul had chosen to remember only the good. So he's, he's thankful and he has an attitude of joy toward this church, not because they're perfect, but because he decided to only see the good. He decided to put on rose-colored glasses and leave them there. Don't you wish everyone would view you that way? Gee, Steve, I don't remember anything you've ever done wrong. I just love the fact that you've done this, this, and this. That's what we want. 
So believing the best about someone, it's a sound and biblical practice. But I found it very interesting that Charles Spurgeon preached this text in 1881 in a message called Love's Labors. I quoted from the same message this morning. And he has a different take on believes all things that I think is worth considering. This is a fabulous message and he personifies love as a newly born little girl. And he says this, no sooner is love born that she finds herself at war. Everything is against her for the world is full of envy, hate and ill will. I would warn the most loving hearted that they have entered upon a war for peace, a strife for love. They are born to hate hatred and to contend against contention. As a lily among thorns, so is love among the sons of men. And concerning the idea of believes all things, he goes first to the time-honored interpretation that I've already mentioned. And he says this, in reference first to our fellow Christians, love always believes the best of them. I wish we had more of this faith abroad in all the churches, for a, a horrid blight falls upon some communities through suspicion and mistrust. Though everything may be pure and right, Yet certain weak minds are suddenly fevered with anxiety through the notion that all is wrong and rotten. He goes on to say, True love believes good of others as long as ever they can. And when it is forced to fear that wrong has been done, love will not readily yield to the evidence. But she gives the accursed brother the benefit of many a doubt. And when the thing is too clear, love says, Yes, But the friend must have been under some very strong temptation. And if I had been there, I dare say I would have done even worse. Or else love hopes that the erring one may have offended from a good, though mistaken motive. She believes that the good man must have been mistaken or he would not have acted so. Love, as far as she can, believes in her fellows. But he goes on, and still speaking of love, personified as a young woman, Spurgeon applies this principle to love for the lost and then with a broader application to to simply believing the gospel. Listen to what he says. Speaking of love as a young woman, she does not refrain from preaching Christ through fear of failure, but she believes in the great possibilities which lie in the gospel and in the spirit of God. And so she deals earnestly with the man next to her. She believes in her own principles. She believes in the grace of God. She believes in the power of the spirit of God. She believes in the force of the truth. She believes in the existence of conscience. And so she is moved to set about her saving work. She believeth all things. This is phenomenal. This puts a whole layer of of richness and joy to the fact that love believes all things. Love believes that the gospel can do its work in another. That the gospel can work in the lost person to bring them to faith and the gospel can work in the saved person to remind them, hopefully remind them as demonstrated by your demeanor and the way you treat them, to remind them of the precious saving grace of God. And when the gospel gets inserted into your unconditional love, that changes everything. It changes everything. When you speak to someone in a way that says they don't deserve to live, it would be proper for them to answer, thankfully, God doesn't believe that. He sent Christ to die on the cross for me regardless of what you think. That's how the gospel inserts itself here. Well, let me do one more component as we deconstruct unconditional love and you thought you were going to get away 
without this one, but we're going to do forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, the topic of forgiveness is a complicated topic, but tonight we're going to keep it simple. Suffice to say that it is required. Forgiveness is required. If you're a believer in Christ who has been forgiven, you are by default a forgiver. That is who you are. Turn with me to Philemon. This is a little bitty letter from Paul right before Titus, or right between Titus and Hebrews, rather. Philemon is a a short little letter from Paul to a wealthy Colossian believer named Philemon. And Philemon apparently had a very large home because the church at Colossae met there. Philemon had had a slave named Onesimus who not only stole from him, but then ran away with those things that he stole, both of which were punishable by death under Roman law. But in God's providence, Onesimus had come across the Apostle Paul and he got saved. He received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so now there's a problem. By the way, Paul, you you know that guy that you've told me that you know uh, named Philemon? Well, as it happens, I know him too because I stole a bunch of stuff from him when I was a slave and I ran away. And so now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. In fact, Onesimus is the guy who carried the letter of Philemon and Colossians back to the church. But he sends him back now as a brother and as one of Paul's ministry partners. He had trained him and discipled him. And so he beseeches Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to receive him back. Paul even offers in verse 8 to to pay back whatever Onesimus had stolen. In verse 18, rather. He said, I'll pay the debt. Now, I don't want to teach through the entire letter, but we can extrapolate some principles of forgiveness found in Paul's appeal here four of them in particular, and we'll just do this quickly. The the first principle of forgiveness found in Philemon is that forgiveness is part of genuine love for all believers. Forgiveness is part of genuine love for for all believers. Look with me at verse 5. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul's reminding Philemon that his love toward Christ is naturally expressed in love toward others. There's no such thing as a Christian who loves some other Christians. Christians are to love every believer. That's who we are. We love the body of Christ. And and going back to the illustration this morning from 1 Corinthians 12, we we would never say, I I like my whole body. I just can't stand my left arm. So I I, I cut it every day and I I stick it out in the cold when it's cold outside and I, I just treat it badly. That doesn't make any sense. If you love Christ, you love every Christian. So that's our first principle. Forgiveness is part of genuine love for all believers. That's the foundation. That's the beginning. There's another principle we could take from this. Forgiveness is best motivated by love. Forgiveness is best motivated by love. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He's saying, yes, love, forgiveness is commanded of the believer in Christ. But Paul says, wouldn't it be better to let love drive your forgiveness instead of just that you have to? Wouldn't that be better? There's a third principle we could find all the way in verse 21. And that principle is, that forgiveness is lavish, not reserved. Forgiveness is lavish, not reserved. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
The word more means you'll do above, you'll do over, you'll do beyond. What was Paul asking Philemon to do? Verse 17 tells us, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. How would you receive the Apostle Paul if you had the chance to have him? You'd cook your best meal, you'd give him your best room, you would give him the royal treatment. Paul says, receive Onesimus as if he is me. But he says, I know you'll do more than that. You'll treat him even better. Keep in mind, this is talking about Philemon's slave. So when the slave walks in to the household, to the, to the compound, where there, there would be a wall and a big home and other servants, what was Paul asking Philemon to do? Onesimus, welcome back. Praise God that you are now in faith. I have moved your things out of your old room that was down in the basement in the, in the, in the dusty area, and I've moved you to the greatest guest room I have, the one with the balcony view of the river. That's where I've moved you because that's what I would do with Paul. Now, what would that say to Onesimus? I think it would say, I think we're good. I think everything's good here. He says, be lavish. Send the message that, that there's no, nothing I'm holding against your account. One more principle. Forgiveness is expected of the believer. It is expected of the believer. Verse 22. Paul says, at the same time, and this is genius, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul's saying explicitly, openly, I may come and visit you. What he's really saying is, I'm going to come check up on you. I'm going to come find out. And if I get to your house and you give me the best guest room, I'm going to know that you didn't do what I say. I expect to be given the second best or maybe the worst because I want to see that Onesimus was treated well. There's an expectation here. He gives a very kind and gentle accountability to Philemon. By the way, there was a whole other level of accountability. Look with me at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Philemon was not just addressed to Philemon, it was addressed to the church. Now, how would you like it if two of you were at odds with one another and I publicly said, so-and-so, you need to forgive so-and-so over here. Are you going to do that in front of everybody? What are you going to say? Yes, I'm going to, I'll do it. Great accountability. So forgiveness is part of genuine love for all believers. It's best motivated by love. It's lavish, not reserved, and it is expected of the believer. It's expected. You know, there isn't really a lot of instruction in Scripture about how to forgive. And I've always wondered about that. One of the most important things we do, and yet we don't really get a step-by-step. First, you make a list of all that person's offenses. Second, you set it on fire. Third, you do this or that. Why do you think there isn't much instruction in Scripture? I, I don't know. I can't tell you why something isn't in the Bible, but my best guess is that those that are forgiven know what it feels like. And we instinctively know how to give it. Now, why would we say that unconditional love is the greatest Christian virtue? I want to take a moment on this. We always want to make our way to the cross if we can. Unconditional love is the greatest Christian virtue because we are most emulating and mimicking and copying Christ when we exhibit those component parts of unconditional love. And let's consider them again. 
the image of God perspective, that another person is made in the image of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Why would Jesus say that you're more valuable than the birds of the air? Because he created you in God's image, not the birds. You were created in his image. How about the component of empathy? Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows all that you've been through. He knows all the pains that you have. He knows all that tempts you. And this is part of his love towards you. That, that's the beauty of praying to a God who knows what you're going through. You never have to pray, Lord, you just don't understand. You never have to pray that. How about purity of heart? Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. If ever a pure motive of love was expressed, that's it. Of those murdering him, he asked the Father for mercy. That's a, that's a pure motive. How about bridge building? Romans 5.10 says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You were the one putting bricks on the wall between you and God. But Christ traversed that wall on a cross-shaped bridge to reconcile you and to build that bridge. How about Humility. We're familiar with Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Listen, you and I tend to stand our ground when we're wrong. Jesus chose not to stand his ground when he was right. That's humility. Well, I've got to stand my ground because I'm right. Jesus was right and didn't stand his ground. He took the cross instead of you. How about the component of trust? What did Jesus say to engender our trust in him? We do not have a blind faith. We have a faith that has reasons for faith. But what did he say? Well, he said things like, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go up to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But he didn't just say things. He did things to engender our trust in him. He didn't just walk around saying, when you die, everything is cool. He didn't say that. First, he raised others from the dead. Then he raised himself from the dead. And so when he said, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day, we can trust him. We trust him. How about sanctification? Now, Jesus didn't need to work on his own sanctification. He was sinless. He didn't need to give a soft answer to turn away wrath. He could give the wrath of God because he is God. But he never had a problem with his tongue. But think about this. Hebrews 12.3 tells us, Consider him, that is Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
Jesus Christ sat quietly and listened as Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb led to slaughter. He sat quietly and listened to the reviling pointed at him by people he created. And he was quiet. How about patience? You know who I think should have had no excuse for being uncertain about Christ? How about the guy who baptized Christ? How about John the Baptist? And yet Matthew 11 records that while John the Baptist was imprisoned, he had a time of doubting Christ's identity. Is this really the guy? I'm, I'm sitting here in prison. And how did Jesus answer? Matthew 11 says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus patiently encouraged John by pointing to himself and his works which verified his identity. And by the way, in the same chapter, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born. Why? Because he was the last prophet ever to predict Christ and he did so in a way that literally said, there he is. How patient was that? He gave him evidence. He gave him encouragement. He didn't say, go tell him that he needs to have more faith. He gave him reasons to have faith. He was patient. How about believing the gospel? Believing the best. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love believes all things. What does Christ believe about you? John 10, 14 and 15 says, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own here's what he believes about you and my own know me. He believes that you know him. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, Christ laying down his life, that's the heartbeat of the gospel. That's the center of the gospel. Without the death of Christ, there's no gospel, there's no hope, there's no joy, there's no future, no eternal life, no forgiveness. Speaking of which, how about Forgiveness. Jesus walked against all human reason. He walked against the advice of his friend Peter, against all notions of self-preservation, and he went against the grain and instead walked alone to the cross. Because that was the only way to secure from the Father your forgiveness, to pay the penalty for your iniquity and your sins, which are so many, so countless, so costly, so ugly, so hell-deserving. Listen. When you forgive, it costs you a little bit of emotional discipline. It costs you a little bit of pride. But for Christ to forgive you, it cost him his life. He had to die. Can you imagine having this conversation with someone who's hurt your feelings? I'm going to forgive you, but in order for me to forgive you, I'm going to have to be abandoned, humiliated, tortured, and murdered. I don't think we would say that. I think we would say, tough luck, I'm not forgiving you. It's too hard. But to forgive you cost the Lord Jesus Christ dearly. And thus, he rightly expects us to forgive one another. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. From your heart. Our Father, it's our hope that we would learn this evening and from the past couple of times. I need this. We all need this. But to love the way Christ is loved. To be above reproach in this. Lord, temper our spirits. Holy Spirit, Let that beautiful fruit of self-control and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, let that ooze out of our very beings. Let that be what comes out of our mouths. Let that be even the very thoughts of our mind. Help us to obey you in Philippians 4.8 because to not do so ultimately ends in thoughts of murder, in hatred, in bitterness, in anger. Lord God, we need to be broken. We need to be stripped down of our pride. I do. We all do. And I pray, Lord, that in in this coming year, every person hearing this message would make significant progress in their sanctification, in learning to be patient and to love one another, to view others as those made in the image of God and to treat them with the very kindness and the very grace that was given to us in Christ. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ permeate how we interact with others. Let it flow through our tongues. Let it flow through our actions to only see the best. Let us put on the rose-colored glasses of Christ to see others as those who will someday be perfected and glorified and so bright and shining and glorious in your presence. We pray that we would Grow and learn so that Christ would be honored and so that he would be pleased and so that we would be an accurate picture, an accurate reflection of him. And it is in his name we pray this evening. Amen.